So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have a very uh, awesome uh, guest speaker who is not really a guest. She's been here quite frequently. Um, she was a little bit nervous about me giving her an intro. I'm not going to try that intro that we talked about earlier. So, Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. um, but this is Melissa Gillespie. Give it for Melissa, y'all. Thank you for that, Ben. Um, Some of you don't know me. Some of you do know me pretty well. I've been walking with the senior girls for the last year, so they probably know me the best. Um, And then I got to be with the eighth and ninth grade girls at camp, so they know me pretty well, too. Um, But the rest of you, you don't really know me, and you're like, who the heck is this girl? I've been at Refuge for the last year, have loved it, got to go to high school camp, loved it. Totally my deal, but I'm not from Las Vegas originally. I've been in Las Vegas for about six years. This past June, it makes six years, and um, I'm not used to this. We're good. Okay, so I just wanted to tell you a little bit about about myself. So for the last six years, I've been a middle school teacher. Um, I've taught middle school in the East. I actually have two of my previous students here tonight, which is pretty cool. Um, And then this next year, I'm actually going to a new school. I'm going to be a junior and senior high teacher, and I'm going to teach U.S. government and U.S. history, and it's in a school for just newcomers to the country. So I'm super excited about that. And is there, can you guys hear me okay? Is it like echoing to you? Okay, it's echoing to me. Um, So that's just a little bit about me. I did go to college in Tennessee, so most people think I'm from Tennessee. I'm not actually from Tennessee. I'm from Georgia originally. So I grew up for 18 years in Georgia, really, really small town. Then I went to college in Tennessee. That's where I came across people like Micah. So I went to college in the town that Micah grew up in, and then the same college that Mary-Kate went to, and so you guys know them pretty well. So it's the same town that I was in, and that's how I was introduced to Las Vegas. So that's just a little bit about me. I'll talk a little bit more about growing up and what it was like for me to become a Christian and all of that stuff. And I talk super fast, so just bear with me. So we're going to look at the parable in Matthew 13. If you guys want to go there now, it is Matthew 13, verses 44 and 46. So I'll give you just a second to go there. Um, It's a really short parable. We've been talking about parables this summer. A parable is basically a story that Jesus told, has some type of moral or lesson to it, um, and that's what a parable is. So this one specifically is about the kingdom of God. And before I even get into it, I just want to clarify something. The verses themselves say that it's the kingdom of heaven. And the reason that it says the kingdom of heaven instead of the kingdom of God is because Matthew was originally written to a Jewish audience. A Jewish audience would not have said the name God because they believed that it was extremely holy, extremely divine, and so they wouldn't have said the name God. So if he's talking to a Jewish audience, then he says that it's the kingdom of heaven. But we're talking about the same thing. So you guys have been familiarized with the kingdom of God, um, like phrase or whatever. You know that pretty well, especially from being at Hope. At camp, they talked a lot about kingdom workers. So you're familiar with that term. And so that's what it's talking about when we look at the parables themselves. So let's look at Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. Now, this is a little bit extreme, so I'll pause and explain a little bit. So verse 44 says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Now, hold on a second, because that just, I'm like, wait a minute, what? You sold everything you had to buy this random field. So imagine that somebody goes, they sell everything that they have to buy this lot of land next to the church because they say that there's a treasure in it. Now, it doesn't say what the treasure is. So we're assuming that it's something extremely costly, extremely valuable. If you're going to sell every single thing that you have to buy the one thing, then you would hope that it would be something extremely valuable. So he sells every single thing that he has, no exceptions, to buy this one field 
with this one treasure in it. Now try to just wrap your head around that. Now let's look at verses 45 and 46. It says, again, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Now this is the one, I can understand somebody selling everything they have to go buy a piece of land. I cannot understand anyone selling everything they have to go buy this one little pearl. So if you've seen a pearl at all, you probably have. I have a necklace of pearls, but it was worth about $5 from Forever 21. It's not worth nothing at all. So if we think about pearls, we don't think about them as something very costly. But I did some extensive research on the Internet through a very reliable resource called eBay. eBay says that there are three main things that tell us that a pearl is valuable. It's its color, it's its luster, how shiny it is, and then also its size and its texture. So the luster, if you have like more of a pink pearl, it makes it more expensive according to eBay. If you have a larger pearl, then it becomes more expensive. And then if you have one that's actually more gritty, not smooth, like what we would buy at Forever 21, then you have a more expensive pearl. So they say that one that you could find that would be more expensive could cost between $5,000 and $10,000. Now my car sitting in the parking lot costs between $5,000 and $10,000. So to think that someone would sell everything they had to buy a pearl that cost the same amount of my car as my car is just like, wait a minute, what in the world are these guys doing? They have completely lost their minds. So they um, are totally losing their minds in my mind. So I'm asking them two questions. The first question I want to ask the first guy is what in the heck are you doing burying or finding treasure in a field? Like who does that anymore? You don't really see people walking around with a metal detector in your backyard, right? So this guy goes and he finds this one little treasure buried in this field. Now, why would he do that? Well, the reason was that then they didn't have a Bank of America right up the street that they could go to and say, oh, I think I'll deposit my money here and then I'll withdraw it. They couldn't go to a teller at a bank. So if they wanted to bury something valuable, then they would bury it in a small place. My sister um, got engaged earlier this year and she got married at the end of June. And so it was a kind of a surprise out of nowhere that her boyfriend slash fiance slash now husband bought this engagement ring. We're like, Brayden, where the heck did you get the money? Like jokingly, we said, did you bury all the money in a box in your backyard? Well, he probably really didn't do that. He had it saved in a savings account somewhere at a bank, but then they didn't really have banks. So they would have buried valuable things so that other people couldn't find it. So they wouldn't want that. The second question if I have is why would you sell everything you have for a pearl? Because as I said previously, eBay, the all-knowing eBay, says that there are very few things that says that a pearl is very expensive. So why would you sell everything that you have to buy this pearl? Now, Jesus says that both of these things are just like the kingdom of God. So I think I missed something. So the um, reason, the first truth I have, or the first statement, is that they understood something that we don't necessarily understand most of the time. And that's the two men understood the value of the item, and they were willing to give up everything to have it. It does not say that the first man went and sold his house and his car, but he wasn't willing to give up his family and his job. It says that he gave up everything that he had to buy this one field. Then the second man, it doesn't say with the exception of his car, did he buy everything. He gave up every single thing that he owned, every single thing that had his name on it, so that he could have that one item. So what do we take away from these two parables? And it is this one thing. Jesus will cost you every single thing you have. Every single thing. It is not with exception. It is not with a, Jesus, I will give you this, but I will not give you this part of my life. Jesus will cost you everything that you have. And if it's not now, you're like, well, it hasn't really been that bad so far. It's been pretty easy. Well, it's something for you to look forward to, actually. Jesus is going to cost you every single thing that you have 
at one point or another. And it may be that in some seasons of your life that it's this area. In another season of your life, it's this area. But it's totally that Jesus will cost you everything that you have. So I talked about growing up in the South. When I grew up in the South, I grew up in this really, really small town. It's called Cave Spring. You've never heard of it. That's fine. Nobody's ever heard of it. It has one traffic light. Count them, one traffic light. Only like 1,000 people. I went to high school and graduated in a class of 125, which I have more students in a year than that every single year. It's just crazy to me. But I grew up in the South, so I grew up in a really, really small church in a really, really small town. Now, this church had probably about as many of you, um, as many in the church as we have in this room right now. Super small. And so when I was growing up, I was one out of maybe 20 youth that were in the youth group. Now, I did not become a Christian until I was um, 15 years old. Between the summer of ninth and 10th grade was when I became a Christian. So before that, I did all of the church things. I went to church. I attended church. I was a leader in the youth group. I went to FCA at school. I did all of the churchy things, so to say, but I was not a believer in Christ. People followed me, unfortunately, but I was not a believer at all during that time. However, I was a natural leader in the group. So when um, we were in 8th and ninth grade, or I was in 8th and ninth grade, I was one of the younger ones, and this couple came to our church, and they taught us all these songs and these motions and these skits and all of that kind of stuff. Now, you guys are like, big deal, whatever. We never had stuff like that, so we were like, oh, my gosh, we have a visitor. This is awesome. So they decided, because I'm obviously not overdramatic at all, that I would be the star of the skit. And so I was given the lead role of the skit, and so this is the skit that I did. I'm not actually going to perform it for you. I'm just going to tell you about it. Don't, don't get scared. So the skit was called I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. Obviously from the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. So you, if you grew up in church at all, you've heard the song before. The verse just says, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Very basic. Nothing complicated about it at all. But I didn't really understand what it meant. So the skit was about deciding to follow Jesus, obviously. So um, the scene was that I was in the lead. I was in front of like five or six other people. We were walking from the very back of the room to the very front of the room, and we were singing the song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. So we sang it. We walk up to the front of the church, and there's this group of people. It would be probably about right here, and there's this group of people standing here, and they represent the area that we would call kind of the partiers at school. So I grew up in a small town, so it was very obvious as to who was partying and who was not. But this group was the one that would tempt people to drink or do drugs or compromise their purity or integrity or whatever it was. They represented this party group. Now, remember, I have five people behind me. So as we get up and we've said, I've decided to follow Jesus, then what do they do except tempt you to not follow Jesus? So they, there was a scene that took place, and they said, well, you shouldn't follow Jesus because of this. Doesn't this look tempting? Don't you want to drink? Don't you want to try this just once? Maybe you can do it just twice. So two or three of the people behind me stay with the partying group. So we continue on. We sing that I have decided to follow Jesus, and we get to the second set. And this was one that was more familiar to me. It was a group of people, mainly girls, which this t it tends to be a girl thing in high school, um, but it was mainly girls. And what they did was they talked about people all the time. They left people out intentionally, and I've been on both sides of that. I've left people out, and I've been the one left out. So I knew kind of what that feel like, felt like, so I identified with it pretty much. So I'm standing there, and they're like, well, don't you want to fit in? Don't you want to be popular? Don't you want to do this? And they're talking about people and making people feel bad, but it didn't matter because you got to fit into that group of people. And so the rest of the people are left behind me, and they leave. So it's just me. I'm still in the room with all of the people, but in the skit, technically, it's just me. 
And so I stand there with the realization that it is literally just me and Jesus at this point in the skit as, as part of it. I'm not a Christian at this point, remember? And I take my Bible, I open it, and it was just like the whole crowd just understood, like, it's just you and Jesus. You say no to this, the party stuff over here. You say no to this, the gossip, the leaving people out intentionally, or you being left out or whatever it is, and you say yes to Jesus. And then the verse that I sang as I walked out was, though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back, no turning back. And the room was silent. No one said a word. The only thing I could hear was my overdramatic grandmother over in the corner, like, sobbing her eyes out, saying, I could see you doing that. And I'm like, Gammy, like, it's just calm down. Nobody needs to watch that. It's okay. But it was the whole point was that deciding to follow Jesus costs you everything that you have. It may mean that you've been in the party scene for a while. And you have to leave that because that's part of your everything. It may mean that you are in the gossip crowd or whatever it is that you fall into. Everybody has like a niche for that. And so whatever it is that you had to say, I'm choosing not to follow that. There's no turning back, no turning back. So following Jesus costs everything. Now, I told you I became a Christian after ninth grade. So at summer camp, I said, Jesus, I give you every single thing that I have. I'm choosing to follow you. And so I started leading again in a Christian group at my school. I started leading more effectively in my youth group. And then I went off to a Christian college. And there I got the chance to work in a student ministry for the first time. And so I started volunteering. All I did every single week was pour Cokes and sodas. That was it. Hey, what do you want to drink? What do you want to drink? What do you want to drink? And that was how I got to know people was through volunteering that student ministry. But it was in the same student ministry where a guy that you've heard his name several times, Melvin Swafford, said, Melissa, do you know how to do a quiet time? Do you know how to read your Bible? Do you know why it's important to do that? And I started walking under Melvin's leadership and started having a quiet time and started spending time with God outside of that. I started having good, solid Christian friendships that I had not necessarily had before. And it was through his guidance and then other people around um, him that then that following year, I said, I'm going to go back to the Christian school again. Then I started working at the church that summer. I went and worked at a different summer camp and things started falling into place. And I was like, okay, this is not so bad. Like, I can follow Jesus if it's like this. And then you fast forward four years, college is over, and God says, Melissa, you're going to move to Las Vegas. Okay, I can move to Las Vegas. I had been on a mission trip here to Las Vegas four times, and God had said go. He had given me a verse in Deuteronomy, and it said that the Lord your God will go before you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And that was like the clear verse that I needed to say okay, Las Vegas is where I'm supposed to be. So I get out to Las Vegas, and then they're like, well, we're hiring 2,000 teachers, except we're not hiring you. And I'm like, okay, great, thank you for that. And then they ended up hiring me later on in the summer. I was scared to death I wasn't going to be able to get a job. Got a job at a middle school. Um, I'm obviously, this is not being, like, rude, but I am super white girl, okay? And so I'm hired into this, like, at-risk school with all these gangbangers and taggers and all of that. I learned a lot about street cred that year, a lot, a lot about street cred that year. I was not there, um, but it was, like, through those people that even though I felt like I was walking alone, that none of my family was here, and I did know people, that I did start learning how to love other people And that Jesus cost me everything. So it meant that I moved away from my family, but that I was going to be okay in that. He was going to take care of it. He gave me these students that needed pouring into, so I continued to do that. I became best friends with this girl who was Mormon. And she, I was the first person outside of Mormonism that she had ever seen live out her faith. The first person in, a, in about 30 years of her life she had ever seen live out their faith outside of Mormonism. 
And so God gave me influence there. And then it happened over and over again. But that did not mean that, again, it was still easy. I have faced loneliness is probably my biggest struggle over the last six years. Just being here without your family's required to love you, right? Like you go home and you're like, Mom, you have to love me. Like, you gave birth to me. You have to love me. Dad, I've grown up with you. You have to love me. People outside of that, sometimes you just don't feel like that. They don't have to love you anymore. So even though I was well-connected and had a lot of friends, it's just like sometimes I need that, like, mom hug. And sometimes I just need to be around my sister. And sometimes I just want to be around my family. And so loneliness is something that I've struggled with. But that was an area where God said, Melissa, I will cost you everything. So you're away from your family but I'm worth it. I'm worth it. I'm worth it. Over and over again was the thing that God told me. Um, John Piper says that the point of selling everything in this parable is simply to show where your heart is. Now, as I've been talking, you've probably identified yourself with one of the things that I've said, whether it was a party crowd and maybe it's like drugs and alcohol. Maybe it's your purity that you struggle with. Maybe it's gossip that you struggle with. Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe it's leaving people out intentionally. Maybe it's your desire to want to fit in. It's one of those things that you probably struggle with. The point of selling everything in the parable is to show you where your heart is. My heart's not always in the right place. Even driving to refuge today, I was like, oh, like, God, do I have to give you this area of my life? Are you sure? And I, like, play this game where, and I did this in high school with relationships was the worst. So date to save flirt to convert, right? That was my motto when I was in high school. So I'm so, I'm so serious. So relationships was like the area that I struggled with the most. And so I said, well, God, like today, I think I can take care of that. I know you have some advice on this, but I can convert him to a Christian. Go me. And God's like, Melissa, you're insane. I've got this. So then I'd be like, God, forget it. I'm not doing it. It's not worth it. That was awful. The next day I'm like, God, you can have every relationship in my life. And the next day I'm like, no, God, let me have it back. I can take care of this. And it's like this ongoing struggle. That was what I struggled with in high school. And then I told you, since I've been here, it's like the struggle with loneliness, that just being by yourself. And God's like, Melissa, you could actually spend that time praying. You could read the Bible. That's an idea. You could go and serve people, another idea. Instead of just saying, I'm lonely and complaining about that, God would cost me everything. And so it means that some of the things that I enjoy or that I love or that I want to hold on to tight-fisted, God says, no, you can actually hand those things back over to me. Um, In the book Crazy Love by Francis Chan, which if you haven't read that, I highly recommend that over the next year of your life you read that book. It is phenomenal. Francis Chan says, Jesus asked for everything, and we try to give him less. Pretty blanket statement, right? Jesus asked for every single thing. The, man, the, two men in the, um, the two men in the parables, they gave up every single thing. Again, it didn't say the man gave this, but not this, and the man gave this, but not this, and God was willing to take that. It said the men gave up every single thing that they had for the purchase of this land or for the pearl, and that the kingdom of God is like that. In order to follow Jesus... In order to pursue the kingdom of God, we have to be willing to give up every single thing that we have. Francis Chan also says, Jesus' call to commitment is clear. He wants all or nothing. The thought of a person calling himself a Christian without being a devoted follower of Christ is absurd. Now that one like, just punched me right in the face. Even walking as a Christian all the time. Let me read that one more time. Jesus' call to commitment is clear. He wants all or nothing. Not in between. He wants all or nothing. The thought of a person calling himself a Christian without being a devoted follower of Christ is absurd. To think that, like, while I was in high school and I was following Jesus, but I wanted to hold on to that area of life, 
that's absurd. That's what Francis Chan said. The man, if we would have looked at the parable and it would have said the man sold his house, we would have been like, who cares? Like, tell us something else. That doesn't make a difference. But because the men were willing to sell every single thing that they had for this one purchase, then we get that the kingdom of God means that it's going to cost us every single thing that we have. When we were at camp, um, at high school camp, some of you guys watched this film and some of you didn't, but there was a film that said that was called Love Cost Everything. And the film was about the persecuted church all over the world. And um, it showed several different scenarios in India. It showed some scenarios in Iraq. It showed some in um, Colombia and in Egypt about these people in the church that were being persecuted all over the world. Now, when we think, when we talk about persecution here, it's like, oh, I got made fun of at school. Or I could get written up at work for saying something that I wasn't supposed to. Or I could potentially lose my job when these people are definitely losing their lives or something harmful is happening to their families or their kids are being kidnapped or whatever it is that love cost everything. So there were two scenarios that really stuck out to me. The first one was at the very beginning of the film. And at the very beginning of the film, there's a guy that has a secret camera on him. And he's walking into this house in India. And as he walks into the house, there's this mob of men, probably like seven to ten men that are walking into the house. And there's a woman that's walking out of the house. And you can tell that she's probably the wife of whoever's in the house. And then it goes back into the room, and there's this man. And you figure out later on in the film that he's actually a pastor in India. So this, this mob of men from the local village have heard about this pastor sharing about Jesus. They don't like that. India is mostly Hindu, like 75 to like 90%, I think. And so they go back into the um, room, and they begin beating this pastor. And you can see the whole thing on film. It's awful to watch because we do not think about anything like that happening, even in India. And so they go back, and they beat this man, and they beat this man, and they beat this man. He's laying on the floor. The mob of men leave. The camera is still there. And you see him get up. And I'm, like, super overdramatic, obviously. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh, what is he doing? Like, why is he getting up? There's something wrong with him. He's probably bleeding and freaking out. And he gets up. He walks outside. The first thing that he said is the kingdom of God is something. And he starts preaching about salvation and starts preaching about the kingdom of God. The thing that he had essentially just been beaten for, he walks straight out of his house and does that same exact thing. Now, when you want to talk about Jesus costing everything, selling everything that you have, and not even being safe in your own home, that's insane to me. But that could be some of you at some point. God could call you to live overseas in a country where Christians are persecuted. In another province in India, 75% of the Christians had to leave because they were being persecuted for their faith. There was no safe place for them to live there anymore. So they ended up having to leave that province of India because it was no longer safe. Another story that they showed that really hit home because it's in our hemisphere, um, was in Colombia. And it was about this pastor and his wife and his two kids. And you see the whole, they like replay some of the scenarios as if it's like a drama. So you can kind of see what happens. And basically the story was the pastor had been sharing the gospel with the people of the village. Now, a little history lesson really quick. In Colombia, a while back, there were guerrilla warriors, which means like just rebel warriors that were out in the countryside that would kill people and brutally murder people and beat people and burn houses and all of that kind of stuff. They were not treating the people in that area well at all. And so they, there's this man that lives in a village close by. He starts preaching to them, giving them Bibles. He's walking around the village. He's sharing Christ. And there's a friend of his who's also a Christian and a pastor who comes to him at one point. He said, the guerrilla soldiers are coming to kill you. And the man's like, not a big deal. Like, 
I believe in Christ. God called me to do this. That's what I'm going to keep doing. He continues to pass out Bibles. He continues to preach salvation. He goes back out to even the guerrilla soldiers. And eventually, they do. They come and kill him. He knew the day it was going to happen. He told his wife and his daughter goodbye. His son was at school. His son was about seven at the time. And so you're seeing these interviews from the wife and the daughter and the son. And the wife is talking about the church that the pastor had started. And she's like, we're still going strong. There are people still going to the church. Um, The gospel is still being spread. People are still being saved. And the daughter is talking about the same thing with all of those people coming to know Jesus in that area. And it was really cool. And the the part that just like, oh, to my heart, was when they started talking to the son, who was about seven or eight when his father was killed. And the interviewer says, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the son looks him straight in the eye, and he says, a pastor. Knowing that your father was killed by the people in that village, around the village, because your father was a pastor, and he preached the gospel, and that son, that small boy, said, I still want to be a pastor. And it's that kind of dedication that Jesus just cost every single thing that we have. And so I just wonder what it is for you. I wonder if you were the man in the parable and God said, give up everything you have. What is it that you're holding in your clenched fist? What is it for you? Because it's different for everybody. It may be different for me than it is for you. But I want you to just think about that um, as we get to a response time. What is it that you're holding on to? Because there's something that you're holding on to. Um, John Piper, the last quote I'm going to read, says that the kingdom of God is so valuable that losing everything on earth but getting the kingdom is a happy trade-off. What is it that you need to be willing to trade? Because there are lots of things that we hold on to with clenched fists, and you don't have to come and tell me those things personally, but there's something in your life, and even as you begin school, that you need to give up to be able to follow Christ. So I'm going to pray for you, and then the band's going to play. I know that I talked super, super fast, so that seemed really fast to me. I'm not sure if it seemed fast to you, but I'm going to pray for you, um, and I want you to just think about what it is that you're holding in your hand, that you're not willing to give up, and I just encourage you to give that up. Um, so God, thank you so much for the two men in the parable. God, thank you that you, um, you shed light on where we should give things up. And you say that it's okay to give those things up, that you're worth it. And so God, I pray for students uh, tonight that are having a hard time giving up the party scene, that are having a hard time giving up popularity. Um, they're having a hard time giving up their relationships and their friendships. Um, Whatever it is, God, I pray that they would just give that to you tonight. God, that we believe that you're worth everything, that your kingdom will cost us everything, but you're worth every single thing that we have. And so, God, we believe that you are valuable. We believe that you are it. And so I pray that as students are exposed to a new school year, that they would completely wholeheartedly decide to follow you, that it would be no turning back, no turning back even if they walk alone. And I pray that you would comfort them in those moments. So, God, we are so grateful for tonight. I pray that you would speak to students tonight in response. They would speak to leaders if they need to. And, God, that you would call them to give up the things that they need to give up. We love you, Jesus. In your name, amen.